there's that point in time where you've got to go, yep, I accept the risk. Something could go wrong. Absolutely. I'll do whatever I can to protect it. Three-time author, speaker, running a charity. The story of you as a police officer, your involvement around the Thailand tsunami. You're also just released your third book, which is Leadership Matters. To be honest, I, I'd kind of wondered where the challenge was going to come from, going back to the police. You know, I'd worked on you know the world's largest DVI exercise in Thailand. I'd worked for Interpol on counterterrorism, and and I just thought, where am I going to find job satisfaction? back in New South Wales and I asked for 12 months leave without pay to focus on the charity. Uh, that was denied and uh, so I resigned. Challenges that we meet, we may overcome, mm. but we certainly won't overcome those we don't meet. We don't need to have all of the answers uh, before we start. When we started, it was just running one home. Now it's running seven homes. We've had 33 kids graduate from university under full scholarships. We've got another 23 currently. And uh, so what keeps me going is knowing that uh, we have a responsibility to the communities that we started supporting and who uh, continue to rely upon us. Pete Baines, how are you, mate? Very well, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. It's uh, going to be another interesting chat in this podcast room. Uh, well, you've had some good people in, haven't you? So I feel pretty humbled to uh, sit in the chair and uh, spend some time having a chat. So for any of our listeners the that does that don't know Pete, um, and I'm sure I'll give you a chance to let everyone know a bit about you, mate, but, you know, we invited Peter on because um, you just have this really rich story. Guess the story of you as a police officer, uh, your involvement around, um, you know, the, the, the Thailand tsunami. And for anyone who wants to find out more, can Google you. But um, uh, there's a lot in that that I just think through, through your story that we'll, we'll unpack. Mm. More importantly, and well, maybe not more importantly, maybe that's, a, that's an overestimation, but you also just released your third book, which is Leadership Matters. Mm. And um, I've had a good read of it. I, I've got a lot out of it. I've enjoyed it. It'll be something that I wish I had have read, you know, 10 years ago. It's, uh, there's plenty of little smart plays in it that I think are really insightful. So today I, I want to draw a bit of that out as well. I think yeah, there's cool. a lot of people that would be interested in what you've got to share there. But rather than me trying to tell the story, I, I think it's best to come from you. So, it, you know, mate, if you can share a little bit around how you've learned, landed in you know, three-time author, speaker, you know, uh, running a charity, all this sort of stuff that you get up to. Um, just tell us a bit about yourself, mate. Yeah, I guess it's uh, all of it is by accident. You know, like there'll be people who have vision boards and designs on where they want to go and what they want to do and, and uh, you know, none of that is for me. Like I, I joined the cops uh, pretty much straight out of school as a young bloke and Worked in Western New South Wales, uh, Western Sydney of New South Wales, and uh, just in uniform. And uh, you know, I got uh, got to the point where I got sick of dealing with drunks and and attending domestics. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was at Cabra Manor, it was a really busy place, and thought there's got to be something more. And um, uh, joined the uh, forensic services group, and uh, as a as a crime scene examiner. So what that meant was I was attending scenes of, of major crimes, suspicious deaths, homicides, sexual assaults, fires, and we're examining the scene, collecting and then interpreting the evidence and presenting that to court. And uh, I found it really interesting and uh, I spent 10 years in Tamworth, regional New South Wales, uh, running the crime scene section up there and then uh, I got uh, I got an opportunity to come back to Sydney as a detective inspector, uh, running half of uh, of Sydney with the forensic area, mm -hmm. and uh, and and then really I guess uh, there was the Bali bombings and the work that I'd done in the area I'd specialised in uh, meant that it was pretty natural to mm -hmm. to be invited to go and. I spent a bit of time over in Bali after the bombings and uh, I was leading the uh, disaster victim identification. So what we're doing there is is identifying those who have died through forensic means and returning them. And then two, two and a bit years later, um, there was a tsunami. And it was funny, I was sitting in Denpasar Airport to fly home after the bombings and uh, one of the colleagues from 
uh, from Victoria Police we were sitting together saying, well, that's the biggest thing we'll ever be involved in, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. 202 people had died, uh, obviously a criminal act. And and then um, it was only yeah, just over two years later, there was a tsunami and, and uh, I spent most of 2005 uh, either deploying to Thailand at, for a month at a time or uh, putting together the deployment of teams from New South Wales to go and you know, and that was unprecedented in size and complexity and challenge. And we recovered 5,395 bodies mm-hmm. and uh, that dwarfed uh, 9-11, which was a previous benchmark, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the forensic effort uh, went for over 12 months, the, the international forensic effort. And, and you know, there was certainly, you know, significant change on my life as a result of that. And that kind of wrapped up for me at the end of 2005. And then I was invited to apply for a secondment to the National Institute of Forensic Science as a specialist. And, and then from there worked for Interpol in Lyon in France. And I spent 12 months researching and uh, uh, writing a classified paper uh, around what's called CBRN, which is chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. So really I was looking at what were the threats, what were the trends, and then what we should do as an international forensic science community to meet those threats and trends. So that was for 12 months, and at the end I was supposed to return to New South Wales Police. Mm-hmm. But then um, I got an invitation to work with the UN Office of Drug and Crime throughout Southeast Asia, in a capacity building role around leadership and counterterrorism, and uh, and that um, that work continued for another twelve months. And next thing, it was two and a half years. I'd been gone from New South Wales Police. They were still paying the bills, but they hadn't seen me. And then they contacted me at the end of that period and said, "You've got to come back," you know. And they said, uh, uh, "Where do you want to go within New South Wales Police?" Because my position had long been filled and. And by then, the charity that I'd started um, through 2005 to support some kids who'd lost their families um, in Thailand as a result of the tsunami, it had some good momentum. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I went back into a full-time role within New South Wales Police, the charity would lose my focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that stage, I was the principal fundraiser. And... um, you know, and to be honest, I, I'd kind of um, wondered where the challenge was going to come from, co- going back to the police. Mm. You know, I'd worked on, you know, the world's largest DVI exercise in in uh, in Thailand. I'd worked for Interpol on counterterrorism. And, and I just thought, where am I going to find job satisfaction back in New South Wales? And so I, uh, um, I asked for 12 months leave without pay to focus on the charity. Uh, that was denied, and uh, so I resigned. And you know, ever since that day, um, you know, most of my waking hours and most of my week is spent focused on on the charity hands across the water. And uh, um, and it's eighteen years now that's uh, passed. So, and that's where we end up today, mate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's it's quite fitting that you share that story that way because you you talk about courage in your book and I'd imagine 18 years ago that decision to pull the pin and resign has uh, probably took a little bit of that but I think for any of our listeners you know that's that's what we should be looking at you've got so much to play with here in mm. terms of experience in crisis the leadership required in those environments the um you know the teams that you've probably worked around the the people you you know and I want to think one of the things in your book that comes out so well is your empathy for the the people that are impacted by the the stuff you've done so maybe I'll just start with the the charity right so yeah. you've made this decision you've you've pulled the pin yeah um you've got your full time in fundraising you know clearly it was fulfilling and purposeful enough to do that what what really was motivated what's been motivating you to stay in this game for 18 years what, why is it why is it still thriving today you know, the, the charity sector is funny. There's um, between fifty and 60,000 charities in Australia. And, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to start a charity. And some would say it might be too easy. And you start because of something uh, for a lot of people that they've been touched personally. Mm-hmm. And for me, meeting the kids uh, living in a tent in Thailand 
it was, you know, August 2005. So it wasn't, you know, in the immediate aftermath. And and it's funny, people think that for me that it was some type of, um, you know, cathartic experience. I've seen so something so horrible. I needed to do something so right to, you know, bring the balance. But it was nothing like that, yeah, you know, like my entire uh, policing career, I'd seen death and destruction and, you know, been touched by, you know, families who had suffered unimaginable loss. So that was my job and that's what I'd done for 20 years. Me and the kids of, uh, in Thailand, I didn't leave there after that meeting going, I've got to do something, you know, my life's changed, I've had this awakening. It was just something that went, it kind of makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, and and I'd been invited in between tours uh, to share stories as a keynote speaker. And uh, when uh, I received that invitation, I thought, well, this guy's full of bullshit because what can I offer? You know, I'm just in the cops. Yeah. What yeah. value have I got to people in banking, finance, real estate, whatever, yeah. you know? And and then it was when I decided to support these kids, I thought if half of what he said is true about the payment as a keynote speaker, I said, well, that's how I raise some money. So I just started uh, speaking and sharing stories and getting paid, and then that became the income for the charity. And uh, and then what happens, you know, there becomes a reliance upon you as the funder. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I went over and opened the first home in uh, uh, 2007 uh, that we'd built in Thailand, I thought, job's done. You know, I went there thinking, this is it, I'm finished. Yeah, well. You know, and it was only when we drove away in, in the car, and it's such a crystal clear memory for me, as we drove away, I thought, well, who now funds the staff? Who provides the operational costs? And and then I realised that the job hadn't finished. It had just started. Yeah. And, you know, ever since then, the, the reliance and dependence has really just increased. And uh, so what keeps me going is knowing that uh, we have a responsibility to the communities that we started supporting and who uh, uh, continue to rely upon us. There's almost a sense of duty. It, it's, it's, you know, you talked about it before, not this, uh, you know, kind of repayment, but mm. it's, it's like I'm, I'm now in the game. Is that yeah, the sort of person you absolutely. are? Absolutely. Like, it, it, you know, I've said this before, it would be selfish to stop, mm. you know, because whilst I've still got the, the ability uh, to raise money and bring awareness and, and uh, you know, profile the kids and make them visible, mm. Um, stopping would be selfish on my behalf. Yeah, yeah. And you've told me before that this, uh, you know, this, so just to run the the charity, you know, you need to run for raise around a two million mark each year, yeah. just to keep it going. Yeah. The more we do, the more it costs. You know, yeah, like yeah. it's, uh, um, you know, when we started, it was just running one home. Mm-hmm. Now it's running seven homes and all of the operational costs with that. And you know, we've got uh, we've had thirty three kids graduate from university under full scholarships. We've got another twenty three currently at university. There's some some really big plans and and big work that we're doing, mm-hmm. and all of that costs money. It does. It does cost money, and and it takes uh, a significant degree of leadership of your you know, your your people yourself in mm-hmm. that. Um, you've written this book. Um, perhaps before we talk about the book in this journey, what have you learned about yourself? What have you seen in the development of Peter Baines post police uh, in the development of this this charity and the work you've done. Yeah, gee, um, about myself, I guess it's um, you know one of the things is 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 that we don't need to have all of the answers uh, before we start. You know, and um, I think it's a case of uh, for me, and it was was kind of through my policing career as well, is that. Uh, um, I, you know, I got promoted, um, very, very young and, uh, uh, and had opportunities come my way, uh, because I said yes a lot mm. and, uh, and continued to, to look for opportunities. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it's an affirmation that, uh, uh, if we continue to put ourselves out there, we won't always be right, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, we'll meet the challenges that we meet, we may overcome, mm. but we certainly won't overcome those we don't meet. Mm. And I think it's a case of just continuing to to move forward. What's yeah. a good example of that? 
in, in the last 18 years where you've looked at something and gone, geez, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going to, we're going to do something. We're going to take action. Yeah, I guess something that comes to me straight away when you ask that question is um, 2010, the charity had then been going for, um, you know, four or five years. We started in end of 2005. We'd created some uh, really good work down in that tsunami area, and that's all we were focused on. Yeah. We had a good corporate supporter. And uh, then I met a Thai lady um, who had come to be an incredible person in my life and someone I deeply love and respect. Her name is May Thill, and she had uh, started a home for kids with HIV or who had lost their parents to HIV 24 years prior to me meeting her. And the location of her home is in rural Thailand. And um, it served her well-being there because land was cheap and it was isolated, which gave her privacy uh, for the kids and protection of the kids. But uh, in the charity sector, if you're not seen, if you're not visible, mm. it's hard to be relevant yeah, and totally. raise awareness. Yeah. So that was the, the, the struggle that she faced. And and many of these kids uh, that she'd supported over the 24 years had lost their life. Mm. You know, and I met her in 2010 by way of a an introduction from someone I was working with in Australia. And, and I flew up there and met her. and. Um, you know, the home, I describe it best as being broken mm-hmm. and the kids didn't look much better. They were sick, they were skinny, um, you know, and they were lacking everything but love. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was burying kids on a regular basis because she didn't have enough uh, to fund the medical needs of all of the kids. Mm-hmm. So it was deciding who... Who should receive the medicine and who would go without? And uh, kids were dying. And she said to me that she'd buried 1,027 children in that 24-year period. And uh, when I met her, I made a number of very quick trips backwards and forwards in 2010, and it just felt right. You know, and I came back to our board here in Australia and I said, I think we can make a difference. And and there were people who were part of hands at the time as funders who were saying it's the wrong thing to do and uh, you should stay in where you established yourself, remain focused on the tsunami kids and, you know, this is your mission drift almost. Yeah. You, you know, next thing are you then in Cambodia or yeah. where are you going? Yeah. You know, remain true. And I just knew that this was important and you know, the measure of the success was that by 2011, we'd stop kids dying. Yeah, well. You know, we yeah. provided what they needed. For 24 years, kids had been dying. We became involved. We made them visible to our community. People supported them, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I think it's uh, sometimes, you know, like it's one of the things that I reflected on in writing the book is there's a, I think an increased uh, resistance to to take on risk. Yes, you know, in business and and as parents, and because of the fear of what might happen. Mm. Mm. But we got to look at the fear, or what can happen if we don't do something. If we don't, yeah, if you we know, stand still, and uh, mm. you know, and and the change that we brought about for that community and for those kids up there. You know, it's not an exaggeration to say there's kids alive today who wouldn't be but for hands across the water and the many supporters that we have. That's a really touching story, mate, and it's, uh, you know, you can tell the hear the passion in your voice when, mm. you, you, when you share it. And I think, um, you know, we use the word courage when it, you know, and I talked about resigning before, but mm-hmm. there's a bit of courage to lean into that space with your board and, and with others. Um and you've clearly learned the value of that. And, and in reflection, you know, um, one of the things you write about in your book, if you don't mind, I'm going to refer to a couple of things because it's it's useful to to use that as a point of reference. But one of the one of the pieces you talk about is like the right team around you. Mm. You know, this idea of you know if your team aren't motivated at the start, yeah, then, yeah, then then you've got the wrong team. Yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah big yeah. trouble if you've got the yeah you know, unmotivated people at the start. Yeah, and um, 
it's hard with with the board because their role is to try and keep you focused and yep. to keep you keep you uh, on track. And quite easily, I see a lot of entrepreneurs that get shiny things syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you you know when you look at that team you've had around you, both the board and the broader team? Yeah, um, how have they served you to support you even even in these sort of ambitious times where you're taking on a bit of risk and expanding yourself? So important to have the right team, and we haven't always been successful, mm-hmm. you know, and. Um, um, and it's always, you know, the, the biggest challenge is, is getting the right people because, you know, getting involved in a charity can look, uh, somewhat glamorous and, you know, uh, um, you know, that it reflects on you as a person, but it's bloody hard. Yeah. You know, it is absolutely hard. You're always asking, um, you know, you're always without the resources that you'd have in corporate or government, you know, it's a, it's a hard sector to be in and, uh, you know, we've been really fortunate that uh, the board that we've had and, you know, the good number of people that we've had um, have the right heart, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I think if, if you can build that trust and that uh, trumps competence, yeah. you know, get the right people who share your values, who share the vision who you can trust and, you know, you can, you can develop the competence as you move forward. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we, we, you know, very fortunate. We've had some wonderful people, uh, come and go and, uh, some wonderful people who are still with us and hopefully there'll be more wonderful people who will, uh, I'm yet to meet. Yeah. Or maybe some listeners out there that yeah. might be inspired a little bit, mate, who knows, but, um, I might change gears a little mm. bit and I think, you know, I'm sure the story will weave in and out in terms of, you know, uh, you know, perspectives you can bring to this. But, mm-hmm. you know, with your book, one of the interesting pieces that I think a lot of people resonate with is you talk about these three kind of characters, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about leaders and then you have these kind of subset of leaders, these two yeah. types of leaders, the achievers and the visionaries. Yeah. Um, firstly, I'd love you just to provide a little bit of colour around that because yeah. I think it's really – it's interesting how you've you've shaped them up and I, I don't want to do it in any disjustice by mm-hmm. me explaining it. But the second thing is I'd love you to maybe describe how you see yourself in that um, mm-hmm. as well if that's that's okay. Yeah, I think there's – you know, it was really interesting when I was uh, positioning the, uh, the contents of the book and we were talking about it uh, between the publisher and myself and – and I've um, uh, published the, this is the second book with Wiley, and uh, when we we're talking about it and framing up the the parts and the the leaders, achievers, and visionaries, and and there's this real, as you know, there's this real crossover. It's not like you're either a leader, an achiever, or a visionary. You know, like it's essentially uh, could be all of them. Yeah, right? and we need them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there, there's a quote in the book that we we need uh, uh, we need dreamers who act. You know, it's no good just having visionaries alone. The the best of those who, you know, have the dream, who have the vision Mm. and then put it into action. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, certainly through the book, there's people who um, I reflect on, people who I've spent time on who who move between in a fluid way between those uh, three areas. And, and, uh, but... You know, for those that are the the leaders and achievers, and those that I talk about in the book, it's I think it's that sense of, and you've spoken about it a few times, is that courage and uh, just to keep making difficult decisions, just to keep being present, just to keep turning up. You know, and I, you know, I've spoken about Mayfield and the struggle that she uh, she faced, and and the thing that you know I've known her now since uh, well for thirteen years, and. Mm-hmm one of the most important people in my life. And and it was really, I really enjoyed the experience of reflecting on her and our relationship when I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just this beautiful, you know, reason to pause and consider her and what she's done and her achievements. And, you know, because I've already shared about the struggles she faced, but, you know, do you really appreciate that by just a, you know, it can be too easy to move on from that and go, wow, that must have been hard. And, yeah. you know, I go, how? And I pose this question without an answer. How do you, uh, you know, start a home for kids, for example, which she did, and the kids were dying? Mm-hmm. You know, is, is that a sense of failure or, you know, how do you measure success there? And if, if it's the first year or, you know, two years on and the kids are still dying, you know, what about five years or 10 years on, mm. 
and you still aren't addressing the problem. You know, kids are coming in, you still can't provide what they need. And this went for 24 years. Yeah. And I look at her and I, you know, I tried as best I could in the book to, to rationalize how she kept going, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think the, um, um, I, I came up with this, that, um, she doesn't let yesterday define tomorrow. Yeah. Interesting. You know, like how, how could she, how could she move forward if she was focused on the loss of yesterday? Yeah. You know, and it's that almost that ability or the necessity to to wake up with a clean slate and go we'll tackle today's problems again yeah you know and and uh and and her hopes being greater than her fears Mm -hmm. you know because i just go how does she do all this uh and how does she continue over such a long period of time yeah and and for me it's someone like her is she a leader um is she an achiever or is she a visionary She's all three, She's all right? Three, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and and you know, and I think that's the, you know, that was what I enjoyed about the book, because you know, was looking at where people sat and what it was their contribution, and uh, um, and it's certainly not a defined formula as to whether you're in one or the other. And uh, as we said, you know, I think it's uh, if you're a true leader, well, then you're probably a, a visionary and achiever as well. Yeah. Well, it raises so many interesting thoughts in my mind but one of the one of the pieces i think is really interesting with the way you describe maven is she's pushed through every, every day she's mm. made, you look forward and there's been this you know, vision that she's clearly you know in the game and in, in there purposeful but equally at the same time there's a lot of people that i see i, I described as playing to win or playing not to lose yeah you know and you've come along and you get talking and there's an opportunity that she embraces with you Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of staying doing what she's doing, yeah. Um, now that I know it might sound really obvious, well, more money means a pretty is a pretty fast route to uh, improvement, yeah. But um, and I got to tell you, mate, yeah, it, it wasn't. That? Yeah, she didn't um, welcome me with open arms. Yeah, so yeah, you I wonder know, how a, that played out. It was a really uh, jarring uh, first meeting, and uh, you know, I travelled to this area called Yosoton, uh, which is outside of Ubon Ratchatani. Mm. in the northeast of Thailand and so many Thais have never been there. Yeah. You know, I've been to more places in Thailand than the majority of Thais, you know, and and um, I flew up there, a domestic flight out of Bangkok, hired a car, drove for an hour out to, uh, and you arrive at the airport and you're the only white fella there, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you are seriously yeah. in rural Thailand and um, hired a car, drove out to this home and, and luckily, Kunrochana and Kruprateep, two ladies I'd been working with in the southern area, had uh, arrived and were with Maythil before I got there. And Maythil didn't speak English, and I certainly don't speak enough Thai to hold a conversation with her. And and we sat in a triangle. Uh, Kruprateep, who spoke fluent English and Thai, uh, kind of uh, was the chair of the meeting almost. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, at one stage, very early in this discussion, Maythil looked at me and I can only describe it with hatred. Wow. You know, just this cutting look that she gave me. And, uh, and Krupateep saw that and, and looked at me and said, it's okay, I haven't told her what you do yet or what you've done. And then, and, and I go, fair enough too, you know, like I'm a middle-aged white bloke turning up to a, a children's home and uh, many of the kids have suffered abuse in their life and I'm turning up, mm. you know, and if she trusted me instantly, you'd go, something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. had to build the trust, you know, and and over the years we did and it got to the point where, you know, one morning she she started doing her bike rides and and one morning she, uh, on the last morning of the last uh, day of the bike ride, uh, she pulled me in and gave me this big hug and, you know, she whispered in my eye, in my ear and she said, she said, I haven't trusted a man for 27 years. Wow. And she said, now I trust you. And she said, I can die happy now. <laughs> you know, and that was, uh, that was like three years before we got to that point. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a relationship that I'll always you know, treasure and value in my life. And, 
and um, but it didn't come easy, mm. and nor should it. Well, it shouldn't, yeah. And I suppose that comes with some perspective from your, on your part. And you obviously persevered. You say you could see something. What did you see in it at that time? Why did you? Why you keep knocking? Uh, I saw that there was an ability for us to bring about some um, some change to the circumstances the kids were in. Mm. You know, when when in two thousand and ten you've got someone deciding who will live and who will die mm. based upon access to medicine. Mm. And if you've got the ability to make a difference, well, perhaps you should. Yeah. You know, HIV is no longer a medical problem. It's one of poverty. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, and that's why kids were dying yeah. because she was deciding who would receive the medicine. And, you know, the, the, some of the stories from up there that I've witnessed and been part of, I don't share publicly because I think people just wouldn't believe them, mm. you know, and the hardship and the challenge that they went through, I went, I was just, you know, confident that we could do something to bring about some positive change. Mm. And very quickly the kids stopped dying, you know, and and there's been great success since then. Yeah, that's outstanding. The um that that idea with you, what I keep seeing with you, Peter, is this idea of sort of duty. You know, I keep that's a mm. word in my mind that I'm noticing. And when I when I hear that story and some of the other things that pop up, there's um the other word that's that I see is crisis, right? Yeah. It's like you it's almost like crisis is what has built you as a leader. Mm -hmm. And you know, as much as there's there's some principles I wouldn't mind digging into a bit further, you almost when in reading the book, you almost see crisis as a a duty, but also an opportunity. Yeah. Um, can you describe to me what, yeah, there's been a lot. <laughs> I said, there's been heaps in your life. Yeah. So what does crisis mean to you when you, when you look at these situations you faced? Yeah, I guess like having, um, you know, my life for the last, uh, you know, 15 years in the police was, uh, on the edge of a phone, uh, being called out to jobs, which were, you know, people were at their worst, mm. you know, and it was homicides. It was all of those things that, uh, and there was never, um, notice, you know, you, you sit down for dinner with the family and the phone rings and they go, there's someone's been shot or there's a, you know, a sexual assault or something. Can you, put down your knife and fork and you go off and do this. And, you know, and that was what built towards, uh, I guess, the skill set to go to Bali and Thailand and make a difference. And and then it was, um, you know, just being exposed to that uh, develops a, a, a skill set and a muscle memory. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's why then, you know, I worked in Saudi Arabia um, uh, in the city of Jeddah after floods, why I went to Japan after the, uh, tsunami and earthquake and and you know when you're exposed to something and you develop a a muscle memory yeah. you know and and for me um i always felt um you know i felt um um you were making a valuable contribution yeah. in times of crisis yeah. and uh you know and it's interesting when we talk about uh, going to Thailand, you know, and and in that time where I got the calls on holidays with my family, and they said holidays are over, you're heading to Thailand, and and I don't know what you know the listeners of the podcast, what how they respond. If they do, they go, I don't want to go. For me, it's I'm, I feel honoured and privileged, and get me on the plane. Mm. I feel like I've got a skill set. I feel like I can go. I feel like I can make a difference. And mm. and I kind of describe it in a metaphor as, as like sport. If you train all year, you turn up on those cold, wet nights and you're training, you're playing the weekend, and your team gets to the grand final. Yeah. You want to be in it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's your relationship. And, that, and yeah. that's us. Yeah. That, that, that was, uh, you know, going to Thailand or Bali or Saudi or yeah. Japan, you know, that was the biggest thing that was occurring on the world stage. Yeah. And so for me, the invitation to be part of it, as I said, I, I felt, um, I felt honored to be asked to lead the Australian team when yeah. I did. Yeah. And, um, and I felt like I had a skill set that, uh, you could make some, somewhat of a difference. Yeah. It's such an interesting way to look at it. It's, um, like you say, like I see it with a lot of entrepreneurs and I would probably describe you as an entrepreneur, although you may not describe yourself that way, is that. <clears throat> That me that muscle memory of 
um, every time you face a challenge, that there's this, yeah. this sense of resilience that comes with it. The other piece that you just talked about there was that skill development. Mm. Um, and I think what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs um, and a lot of um, business leaders in general, and I'd love your opinion on this, is one part of this is developing that skill so you can go into to develop um, and, and execute on that in the way that you describe. You get excited about mm, your craft. Mm, mm. But then, I'll, then there's this point where your technical capability is it diminishes in value. Yeah. Right. And and it's really more about how you help others. Yeah. Well, that's leadership, it isn't it? Yeah. And and I wonder, you know, when did you notice for you that there was this transition and what have you potentially seen in others around this transition from a yeah, great technician, mm. um, but then leans into the development of others through, uh, through your journey. Where did you notice that for yourself? Yeah, I guess in the, in the police, it's a, it's a, it's probably a different, um, like the the structure of it is that if you excel as a practitioner, uh, then uh, that's how you're assessed to that first level of management mm. or leadership. And uh, uh, because you, you you've done you know, you know job well, for example, then you pit yourself against the others and and you throw your hat in the ring to apply for promotion. Yeah. And then uh, the next level of promotion, you then assessed on on what you've done and. Uh, you know, there used to be a saying, or there was a saying when I was in the cops that you got promoted to your level of incompetence. Yeah, yeah, you know, you yeah, kept yeah. getting promoted until you were no good, and then you stopped. Yeah. And uh, and I guess it's um, you know, for me, I was I was really fortunate in that I worked in a specialist command. Um, in that, and what I mean by that, from a promotional point of view, was there were a few uh, uh, people applying. Um, for the job who had a realistic chance yep. where if you're in the general policing area of, you know, uniform or detectives or so forth, you'll have hundreds of people applying, yes. but there's lots of jobs. Yeah. So that's yeah. the that's the other side of the knife's edge. If you miss out, you wait until someone dies. <laughs> and I was just there at the right time. Johnny on the spot. Yeah. 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 So that's where, so you were thrown into that leadership. Oh, all by choice. Yeah. You know, like I think as a practitioner, uh, you know, you're turning up to a crime scene. Yes. And, um, you, you know, it's your responsibility to take control of that crime scene. So yeah. you, you're demonstrating leadership by, you know, how you manage all yeah. the police resources yeah. and how you control that scene. And, and that's where it starts, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. where you're not undertaking a leadership course per se, yeah. but you, you're exercising the skill and, um, ownership of the domain that you're in. And then it just, you know, I think from a leadership point of view too, like it's uh, there'll be people who will be attracted to it and uh, there'll be people who will be happy to continue to be practitioners or, or um, you know, let that chance go by. It's not for them. Yeah, totally. It's it's interesting. For most people, I see them as accidental leaders. Often mm. it's, it's closing a space. Yeah. It's saying, yeah. well, I, I'm sometimes motivated by money and, or yeah. just growth or the ch- the idea that I can be better. Yeah. Um, and you you had this interesting quote in your book, which is basically some people the the risk and reward yeah. is just not there for them. Yeah, it's to take on uh, a leadership responsibility. How have you seen that play out, uh, either good or bad, over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and and I think it's becoming more of a problem too. And uh, you know, and I see that uh, very much in in Thailand, where it can be a punitive. Um, uh, culture of uh, getting things wrong, mm. um, where uh, risk may not be encouraged, and uh, therefore you go, well, why would I take what that? Doing, why yeah. I take the burden on? You know, and uh, um, and there is very much that play between between return and you know what you're putting out there with your time and uh, giving up to take on those roles. Yeah, definitely. Again, a little bit of a change of gear, but uh, you know, in terms of the the people you've had the chance to work with, mm. right? So one of the things I think you've um, been able to achieve is this speaking career. Mm. So it's supported the growth of the charity. Clearly it adds a lot of value to others. Your story is quite inspirational for many as well. When you've, you're, you're invited in by corporates typically. Yeah. Um, they don't go through the the tire journey. They have, they, they have in usually a fairly comfortable office. And yeah, yeah. All these modern uh, kind of uh, features that we all have the luxury of having, particularly in Australia. Yeah. Right. What, what is it that most businesses are looking for you to, to tap into when you consider the speaking engagements, these conversations with, with teams? Yeah, I think, you know, the attraction is that uh, the stories are, 
um, are different to what they will hear, but the leadership lessons or the leadership insights uh, are relevant uh, mm. to to what they're doing. You know, like when you when you look at the, some of the challenges that we faced in Thailand, um, you know, we had a workforce of uh, uh, 450 forensic staff who came from 36 different uh, countries. And, uh, you know, there was no time to plan this international response. Yep. Um, you know, any planning that was done on that kind of scale was uh, almost laughable, mm -hmm. you know, to think that we'll be dealing with, you know, f turn up to a temple and there'll be three and a half thousand bodies in a temple. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, any yeah. type of planning around that you just wouldn't take seriously. And I think, you know, when we talk about the value of communication, you know, like I... Uh, and the impression that we can leave on people. You know, I I spent some time with a uh, a German uh, man and his daughter uh, who lost uh, he lost his his wife in the tsunami. And and you know the story was that they turned up at um, at, at our site uh, where I was uh, running the body identification area. It was really unusual to have them turn up. Um, because we weren't receiving, mm -hmm. you know, relatives and so forth. And and um, he shared his story with me and his story was that he'd returned to Thailand uh, without their kids uh, for uh, a wedding anniversary. It was their first holiday uh, away on their own. And the morning of, uh, of Boxing Day 2004, that had a late breakfast and they were walking along the beach and and then like for a lot of people, the, they stopped when the water went out mm -hmm. and they stood and looked and rather than retreating, they remained there. And then he described how uh, the water came in and uh, him and his wife were running up the beach as fast as they could holding each other's hands. And the water caught up and it knocked them over. And uh, he held onto her hand as long as he could. And they went under the water and he said he, he came to the surface and he saw the fear in his wife's eyes. Uh, she went under, they were separated, and he never saw her alive again. Wow. And he came to our site and I said to him, you know, why have you come here? And he said, I want to understand the process that you've gone through to identify my wife. I said, fair enough. I said, why have you come back to Thailand? And he said, I want to go back to the hotel where I last spent a night with her. He said, I want to go to the restaurant where we last shared a meal. And he said, when I've got the courage, I'll go back to that place on the beach. I said, fair enough. And we spent a couple of hours together and, um, you know, he was showing me the scars and injuries and, showing me photos of his kids. I was showing him photos of my kids and talking through the process. And and um, his daughter, uh, you know, shared her loss um, of losing her mum. And, and I put them, uh, we shared um, a meal together at, at our site and then organised some transport for them and sent them up to the German team because every team that was there of that size had a liaison officer to look after the family. And that wasn't my job. And uh, so I sent them up there and, and I'd made an appointment and called ahead. And two nights later, a social function uh, where all the leaders of the uh, police on deployment were, were gathered. And I spoke to the German liaison officer. She said, Pete, you know that couple you spent that time with? I said, yeah. And she said, they absolutely love you. I said, beautiful, tell me the story. And she said, what happened is when they arrived in Thailand, they went to the German team and the person they spoke to just sent them straight to us. And my reflection on what had happened was the person they spoke to forgot what we're in business for. Mm -hmm. We weren't there to identify bodies. We were there to provide answers. Mm. And every time we have an interaction with someone, we have an opportunity of leaving an indelible impression. Doesn't matter what business we're in. Absolutely. You know, every time someone sits opposite you in a podcast, every time you walk into a retail store or a restaurant, we have an opportunity of leaving an impression. 
And it takes no more energy to leave a positive impression than a negative one, exactly. you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and this is the kind of thing like the, when I share the stories of that I do, I think the reason that I've had the longevity in the speaking is because people say, well, that's, it's, it's different scenario to what we deal with, but the message is the same. Principles the same. Yeah. And we, we were just leading people the same as what most organizations are doing, but we were just doing something different. Firstly, that completely resonates with me, mm. right? It's, uh, you know, this, the story is quite emotive as well, right? Cause at the end of the day, can you imagine yourself standing in those shoes and mm. you know, that person and, and not having any empathy, not having someone want to hear, hear you want, not wanting your. And I can understand how that occurs, you know, yeah. because when you, when you're just confronted with like death mm. as we were like day after day, and this is where we lose the empathy, mm. you know, like it's, uh, um, you know, when you're just doing something repeatedly, yeah, the significance of what you do is it can become lost. Well, I think that's a good point, right? The same thing happens in any any function of um, business. In my experience, you know, we get into this grind, yeah, and and it's very easy to get let that uh, influence how we think and behave and feel about the environment. Yeah, and I'm gathering that what you do is is shake that up and stimulate that and say, hey kind of get let's get back to the heart of this absolutely and i wonder you know because for me that's um one of the things that crisis provides is that sense of urgency around mm. the need to change mm. um and i think what's mm. i think can be lacking in organizations big and small is when we don't need to change but we should change right that that sense of um uh, purposeful change that mm. is is driven by a greater hope for uh, an improved impact or yeah. an improved way of working or whatever it's, whatever after we're after. Well, Seth Godin yeah. says that, doesn't he? He says if you, if you're not upsetting people, you're not bringing about change. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly. And and I wonder, you know, so, so that's what I love. I love about about crisis. I think mm. you know we noticed that in COVID recently, there was some great leadership shown yeah. by many organisations to help their people through that, and some not so good either. Yeah, but. But when it's not there, you know, now's an interesting time, right? Mm. We've got you know, the headwinds of uh, interest rate rises and operating costs are increasing and all of this is happening and we've got this sort of slow sort of boil coming up on us. Mm. And, you know, that could be enough. Maybe it's not. Mm. But I wonder, you know, do you do you see that? Do you see that need for leadership to to agitate more, to, to tie it back to purpose or, or, or do we have it right? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that's, that's the visionary part of the book, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's those who look and go, okay, well, what's next? Yeah. You know, and, uh, because the job's never done. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's, that's, uh, you know, reflected in, um, our journey through hands. If I use that as an example, like if we'd set out with a very clear purpose to provide a home for the kids, we did that. Um, and if we would, we could have stopped then, you know, but, uh, as as different NGOs and corporates and government pulled out of Thailand, the need grew. You know, we went from 32 to 64 kids uh, within 12 months of opening the home, you know, and we go, okay, well, let's build another one. And then we built an education centre. Then we took on Home Hug and, you know, and at any point we could have done, we could have stopped and said we've done enough. Yeah. You know, yeah. and no one would have, you know, been critical. And yeah. To the point now where, you know, I'm, I head back to Thailand in a couple of days for, you know, another trip where we're building a social enterprise there. We're uh, building the foundations of an organization over there that will bring um, income certainty into what we're doing. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's a, it's a huge uh, commitment to do that. But, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do is to keep yeah. changing and, because if we don't, you know, well, we're not going to grow. Yeah, yeah. Well, things go backwards yeah. ultimately in the end, don't that's they? That's right, yeah. And, and that's probably where that visionary piece translates to the achiever. Mm. Right? Because to me, one of the things I, I also think we need or is sometimes lacking in certain environments I see is that that idea that we we attack risk intelligently. Yeah. Right? It's almost like, okay, well, there's risk. We can't ignore it. We can't yeah. actually delete yeah. it. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, what's your perspective on the achiever component of and a team or a leadership style. Yeah. How does it play out in a really effective way? 
Yeah, I think, um, and one of the things, as you might have picked up from reading the book, is I get the shits with people who just, uh, you know, uh, run the whole thing about risk and and risk avoidance. And, um, you know, and I think um, the more policy and procedures that we put in place and and uh, we take away the creativity, we take away the innovation, uh, we take away leadership. And, and as I said before, as an organisation or as a, as a parent, um, if we're just so protective of our, of our kids, how do they develop resilience and decision-making and leadership themselves? How do they, how do they learn to recover from um, shit going wrong mm-hmm. if they haven't faced it? Yeah. You know, and... Uh, um, you know, there's there's an example in the book I talk about with an organisation who we were looking to work with uh, in the provision of our bike rides and and uh, their condition of uh, taking us on um, because we we run the I better give some background we run some uh, these multi day bike rides through Thailand and we finish at one of our homes you know and. And people who are coming, uh, they're not cyclists. They're people who are on an adventure, you yeah. know, and they raise somewhere between five and ten grand to, to come for the charity. Um, you know, they've paid normally their costs are around that five grand themselves, and and to get there, so it's significant. Yeah. And and then we haven't even spoken about the training and. And but the reward for them, uh, there's a whole, you know, series of measures. But the ultimate is when they finish at the home yeah. and see the kids that they've been supporting. Yeah. Now this organisation that I was looking to to work with said, yeah, we're happy to work with you and provide the bike riding services, but you can't finish at the home uh, because of the potential risk that someone might. Um, you, you know, do something wrong with the kids. And, uh, and I said to them, uh, I said, so what you're asking me is to recruit these bike riders that say, trust me, but I don't trust you and give me this money, but I'm not going to show you where it goes. And I said to them, he, he, let me give you, let me frame up what you're asking. I said, before we took these kids on, uh, before we took this home on, these kids were dying because of a lack of funding. Yeah. Evidence, fact, we got involved. I took bike riders there. We rode through the through the north of Thailand and finished at these homes. These bike riders saw the kids. They saw the change we're bringing about. They saw the lives of the kids we were saving. They raised money and they came back and rode again. We stopped kids dying. I said, if you are saying to us we can't finish there, there is no trust, there is no visibility, people won't ride for us, and the kids will go back to the point of dying. Yeah. And the the view was, well, that's better than them being exposed to, you know, us being exposed to some type of risk of you taking these bike riders to this children's home. And I go, it's just absolute corporate bullshit that gets in the way of common sense. Yeah. You know, and I go, this is where I I say that those in, in charge of risk should be also working half their week on income generation. Because, you know, it's just too easy to say, no, there's risk in that. You go, oh, there's risk every time we step out the door. Yeah. You know, does this this organisation that I was looking to work with, would they be happier if we stayed at home and rode on exercise bikes in our living room? So there was no risk. Yeah. You know, and you go, there's that point in time where you've got to go, yep, I accept the risk. Something could go wrong. Absolutely. I'll do whatever I can to protect it. Like every time we get a group of bike riders on the road, people fall off. Yeah. That's the nature of bike riding. Yes. But we accept it. I'm so glad you said that. There's, you know, in co- particularly in corporate land, you know, let's face it, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners that are in corporate land listening to this and they would probably appreciate this and they may even be a culprit of creating this and that is, you know, uh, you know, policy that is irrational or risk management that is irrational and, and stifles the things that they're after. And, and this is the thing, like you, you've said about crisis and, and, you know, the interesting thing is how quickly we cut through policy and procedure and avoid it when you're in times of crisis. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, well, it needs to get done. So we'll remove all of these layers because we, it's a crisis. And you go, well, if you can remove it during crisis, why does it need to be there? It's either there all the time yep. or let's get rid of it. Well, only, uh, only a couple of years ago, people were having that conversation about uh, a little thing we call a pandemic, right? And, uh, you know, and, and that's that's an interesting conversation because I, I, I really think in, in organisations we do need 
organizing principles. We do want people to to function well and have a sense of certainty and logic, and that's part of being a fantastic of leader is providing of that. Um, but but the 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 strangling is that 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 next phase that you're talking about that yeah. that reduction of productivity that reduction yep. of uh innovation and and I wonder you know maybe maybe we go too far right it, it's um that conversation you had I'd be curious um obviously it, you know you called it out yeah um so what was the outcome yeah we set up our own uh touring company yeah you know I just went this is lunacy what they're they're asking and and it was it, it was just came down to um, some some corporate rules, a policy that existed, and there was no um, no desire to expose themselves to risk, and 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 you know I just could not comprehend that what they were asking uh, was was reasonable, you know, and uh, but it was that uh, lack of lack of appetite for 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 risk. Yeah. The uh, talking about being reasonable, I, I, our business works with small and emerging businesses, and we also work with some corporates, quite a few corporates. And uh, over the years, you'll get often asked, a bit like yourself, maybe not a speaking arrangement because I'm not a public speaker in all of my team, but maybe like a one day workshop or something to explore a plan or just resolve some idea. And and often after that, you know, what I'll say before we even do that is, well, do you? Do you want to waste your money, or do you yeah. want? <laughs> like yeah. to, we can go and do an offsite workshop, but yeah. very rarely does that translate. Like the reason this is happening is is a habitual. Typically, you know, there's, yeah. there's there's things around the environment, the ecosystem that are causing this. Not just the not just your people uh, exploring the problem. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, sometimes the purpose is just simply to drive awareness, and that's okay. I respect mm-hmm. that. And there's other times where what they're really asking for is is to to see change of behavior or change of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you notice? Uh, I'm sure you've spoken to quite a few corporates over the years. Um, they get revved up, no doubt, by hearing some of your story. What happens after? I move on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's part of uh, – uh, part of the thing that I miss is uh, the impact of uh, uh, of the of this time that we spend together because my engagements are so short with organisations because I'm not in their you know leading change programs such as yourself and your guys. It's you know I'm very much a, a, someone who comes in and speaks at a conference and mm-hmm. provides some you know challenge some um, you know questions and. Some learning out of it, and yeah. and you know, and uh, um, that's ne- on its own never going to bring about change in an organisation. You know, that's uh, it's a bit like a warm bath, isn't it? It feels good while you're there. Yeah, good for an hour or two afterwards, and the next day you've moved on from it. Yeah. yeah, you know, that can be a lot of the the keynote speaking, and uh, but you know, and I say that a bit flippantly because you know the relationships I've had and some of the return that we've got from sharing stories um and you you know the hands has been built on the distribution uh so much of the you know the wonderful opportunities i've had to travel the world speaking yep and that's why hands has grown yeah and that's where our audience comes from and and people hear it and then you know we had two riders who rode with us um in january of uh of this year 2023 and uh, they were both nurses and uh, um, they said to me, uh, we saw you speak at a conference 10 years ago. It just yeah. took us to now to get on this bike ride. You, you, you talked about the bike ride and uh, we committed that we wanted to do it. It just took us 10 years to get there. And, wow. uh, you know, and it can be one of those things that, uh, um, you know, for some people the story will will sit with them and remain and, um, you know, and that's uh, – that's a really nice thing. Well, I think I was about to say that that's the power of your work, right? Yeah. And it's probably why we're here today. Yeah. You know, the story has popped up in your book. Yeah. Uh, the story has permeated into many people's lives and, mm. and it's it's translated into to people motivated to do something about things. Right? Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. It's the same process of starting a workshop to get awareness, right? You just yeah. start somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I love that about it. And I wonder, you know, it, you know, we probably could talk about this forever, but if we think about 
Peter 10 years from now, mm. right? what's, what's this journey hold for you? You know, the work with hands, uh, you know, we were very much focused on and our success was uh, providing value to those who supported us. So heavily events-based. And then the um, uh, uh, the pandemic kind of ripped the arse out of that, yeah. and uh, and you know one of the the real learnings uh, that was brought to this by a new board member, and it should have been so obvious, is is that the future lies in Thailand. You know those who should be supporting Thai kids are Thais. You know, and uh, um, and we need to build a structure uh, there in Thailand and. And that's the work that I'm, you know, heavily working on now and why I'm spending so much time backwards and forwards between the two countries, why we've restructured the board, our CEO's focused on it and um, is building a structure in there that takes a reliance um, off us because it's not a good business model mm-hmm. to have reliance on two key people. Yes. And the other is our chairman who brings so much of uh, income into us as well through her organisation and than my work and you know so for for me for 10 years in 10 years time it'd be uh um like i'd like to to think that there's some positive contribution i can make to hands uh for a while to come mm-hmm. uh i'd like to uh have uh less of my time eaten up with it in a lot of things that um i probably don't need to be doing yeah. and uh you know, that will give me more time to do the things that, you know, outside of hands that I really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And no doubt um, translate that to a bigger impact, right? Because it's interesting that every not-for-profit I talk to, it's it's almost putting that commercial hat on and thinking about how you can turn the system into a machine that supports itself, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like every not-for-profit or every charity should be ceasing to exist. You know, it's this, you know, like as a small business, you're not working to to, to make yourself redundant, mm. but that's what a charity should be focused on. Mm. And, um, you know, whilst that's uh, probably not um, on the horizon uh, while we're continuing to build the type of programs we are, yep. you know, I think for us, um, if we can get the digital learning centre, the hospitality learning centre, um, you know, really coming along and, and just before COVID, you know, I'd been offered some land and I had this real vision of um, creating a, a sports academy uh, and it's this beautiful lot of land. And, and, and I guess, you know, if that's potentially a price I paid of COVID is I don't know if I've got the, the personal, um, you know, energy because uh, it fe- it's felt like we've had to start again, yeah. you know, 18 years on and, and I don't know that, um, you know, that I've got that space to do the sports academy, but, uh, you know, we'll certainly get the other two, um, you know, humming along. And, and I think that'll be a really nice place because it's not just for our kids, it's for the broader community where we're providing education that doesn't lead to qualification, but education that directly leads to employment. Yes. So we don't offer the education unless there's a direct line to employment and uh, and working with the industries before we start. And uh, so, you know, that's exciting. And, uh, um, and I'd like to see that certainly come to fruition in the next couple of years. Yeah, outstanding, mate. Well, uh, you certainly don't leave uh, a lot of stones unturned. You've, you've probably over overcommitted yourselves at times at times i can see the the energy that goes into this mate it's impressive so i really wish you all the best and, yeah, and i guess you, with mate. this this book made now it's, mm. it's part of the journey um you know if, if there's people listening what are some of your thoughts and recommendations around reading the book <laughs> buy it get it <laughs> yeah um yeah look i think it's it, you know as you said it's my third book and and i really enjoyed reading uh, writing it mm-hmm. it was something that um you know came uh quite easy like i had a couple of contracts on offer uh, when i uh, sat down and decided and you know for my process of writing a book is i don't write until i've agreed to a contract and then i write the book and uh, so i don't turn up to a publisher with a manuscript and and, um, you know, once I had the, the contract, um, um, you know, the time quickly s- slipped away before I had to submit the manuscript. And, but I wrote, uh, 
And yeah. as a sign of how easy the writing ended up coming, I wrote 25,000 words in two and a half days while I was in, um, in uh, uh, Koh Samui at the end of our bike ride. And, and it was just something that I enjoyed, you know, and I said before, I enjoyed the reflection, the time and space it gave me to reflect on some really inspiring people mm. who have impacted my life in such a positive way. And, and I enjoyed it. And I hope that, you know, that, and it's very much in that story uh, format. And, uh, and, you know, the, the first book I wrote was just stories of my policing and the start of hands. Yeah. And uh, the second one is very much a uh, almost a textbook on corporate social responsibility as a profit center, where this one sits, you know, kind of in the in the middle. It's full of stories, and and that's what I enjoy is yeah. is uh, telling stories. Yeah, well, I, I I've got to say I love it, and I I'm a pretty big critic on books because yeah, right. you, know, you, you you read a few and. It comes with part of the territory of the work yeah, you do too, yeah, right? And, and this one, what I do love about it, I think for anyone is you can find yourself in it, right? Mm. You can find in your story a story that you, resonates in your own life. Yeah, and, nice. And I think that's really powerful in terms of the ability to not get wound up in just talking about the things that are relevant to Peter Baines, but mm. using that story to help someone find their own thing in it. And uh, that's how I read it anyway. Yeah, so cool. I think for anyone in, in any leadership role, while some of the principles are, um, you know, things we should understand as leaders, mm. um, the key in it, I think, is just translating it to your own relevance, which yeah. I really valued in it. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Thank you. I want to say, first of all, big thanks. There's heaps of wisdom you share. There's so many, like in your stories, I think there's so much that will touch and resonate with others and uh, on their own journey. And, and, you know, we talk about this idea of pursuit of performance and, mm. you know, the epitome of that in terms of the, the things you've set out to achieve, the, the the things you've leaned into along the way and, and the challenges you embrace. So, mate, I hope you keep doing and I hope you have find the energy to keep yeah, doing it, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Good so uh, we'll let you run and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you, mate. It's been a pleasure. Go ahead, Pete. Thanks, mate. You're on your mate. No worries. <laughs>